welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast. I'm your host, Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady. Edible Alpha is a curated learning community whose goal is to accelerate the dissemination of the best practices for creating profitable food companies. This starts with understanding and implementing the right business model and preparing companies to raise the right kind of money at the right time. This information is what entrepreneurs need. It's also what lenders and investors need. This podcast series is one dimension of Edible Alpha. In it, we will be interviewing a wide range of stakeholders, including entrepreneurs, lenders, investors, and service providers. Each of these podcasts will showcase elements required to build and fund profitable food businesses. So, hey, Jeff, thanks for coming down to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. So why don't you start by talking about the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic and what you do there? Sure. Uh, the, the Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic is a clinic of the University of Wisconsin's law school. Uh, we use second and third year law students to provide free legal services for startup businesses. Uh, so my position there is as a supervising attorney. We have three of us that are supervising attorneys that supervise the law students. So all of the work that's done by the law students um, is reviewed by an actual attorney, somebody like me, uh, before it goes to the client. So um, so the, the law student works with the client to figure out what their legal needs are. Uh, the law student, in conjunction with the supervisor, does the legal work. Um, and the client, for their part, gets free legal services. Yeah, and you've worked with a lot of my the client companies that I've worked with, and I can say that it's been super helpful. Yeah, we we get a lot of really good feedback, um, and you know we a significant amount of our work, I'll say, you know, ten to fifteen percent sort of fluctuates with time, um, but about fifteen percent of of the work that we do is in the food and beverage industry. Yeah, and do you think that's because of your background? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and frankly, I think it could be higher, um, just sort of knowing the core competencies of the state of Wisconsin. Um, about 35% of the work that we do is information technology related. Mm -hmm. Um, that seems a little disproportionate to me. Uh, It's because you're at the university, But it's because we're at the university. And, you know, IT encompasses a lot of things. I mean, there can be food and beverage companies that are, at their hearts, you know, applications. So, um, so, you know, IT sort of is an overarching, uh, you know, category that kind of a lot of other things tend to – can sometimes fall into. So – but I think we're we're trying to expand the amount of work that we do in the food and beverage industry. Um, I see that as a as a critical industry in in the state of Wisconsin. It's also one that is very underserved. Um, there are other you know industries that have been targeted by the state of Wisconsin as sort of core clusters. Um, you know, for example, water technology. Um, but by and large, those industries aren't underserved by legal services. Anybody that's going to start up a multi-million dollar water technology company uh, has a few, you know, has right, a few has grand enough to throw funding. at an attorney. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you know, startup in food and beverage, you know, can mean a lot of different things. And, 
Um, it can be pretty easy to get started with relatively low capital outlay. So they may not have a lot of cash to be paying attorneys to get their businesses started. Sure. So, um, so it seems to me that food and beverage is one of those industries in particular um, where our clinic can be particularly useful. Right. And you have a background in the beer industry, right? I do have a background in beer industry. Uh, but before I was in the beer industry, I was a software developer. But um, in 2007... We'll forgive you. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. Um, in 2007, uh, I started doing some work. I moved to Wisconsin uh, in, two, in late 2006, and it didn't take me long to start drinking beer here. Uh, so, um, <laughs> as I was, man. I know, yeah, as I was, as I was starting to, as I had moved to Wisconsin and was, um, and was, and was starting to get familiar with the craft beer industry here, it became pretty apparent pretty quickly that, um, that, all of the startup breweries, you know, needed needed help and guidance. They were great at doing what they do. Um, they were great at making beer, uh, but they needed some help with the with the legal work. And uh, a lot of them were sort of neglecting that, or you know, not really knowing what to do. Um, and so it was a pretty pretty easy space for me to fill. My my legal background is in. Uh, is in corporate organizations and intellectual property. So it was a pretty easy fit mm-hmm. um, in terms of the needs of, uh, of breweries. Um, and so I started working in the food and beverage industry by working with breweries here in the state. Mm-hmm. As, a, as an attorney. A, as an attorney, yeah. uh, business advisor, right. taste tester. Nah, yeah. Uh, and you know, kind of whatever they needed. Craft Beer Week? Uh, yeah, so... Um, so I first started. Uh, I started a blog at the time. That was kind of a dirty word. Um, so I called it an online publication because I didn't there want to be. I didn't want to be seen as being a blog. But I suppose now we're allowed to use blog, and it's not an aspersion. Um, so I started a blog called Madison Beer Review. Um, and by doing that blog is really how I found a lot of the people in the craft brewing uh, in the craft brewing industry. Um, I started getting out and talking to people, and um, at that time, this was 2007. Um, so at that time, uh, the uh, Great Dane was trying to get legislation passed uh, oh, so right, that they could expand. More, yeah. yeah, at the time, the 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 brewery, the brewing legislation. Uh, only permitted a brewery to have two locations. And uh, the Great Dane had a location, had their downtown location, um, and they had their Fitchburg location, and they wanted to open up Hilldale. Right. Um, they had they had gotten a lease at Hilldale, but <laughs> couldn't do anything there. Uh, and so they were hoping with all hopes that they could get some legislation passed that would let them actually do something there. Um so they got through some legislation that created a regulatory distinction now between breweries and brew pubs, um, and that allowed them to have up to six locations. So now they have, I think they're, I think they're just now getting ready to open their sixth location wow. somewhere. Um, so is that true for everybody that they can have six? So that's true in the state of Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, yeah. Okay. So as is true with a lot of food and beverage, um, but beer in particular, alcohol in particular. 
um, there's sort of this federal overlay, mm-hmm. um, but every state has its own specific implementation of its rules mm-hmm. um, or its laws. And so um, here in Wisconsin, we make a distinction between breweries and brew pubs, uh, and that's thanks to the Great Dane. And that legislation came out in 2007. Um, as a lawyer who was writing about the beer industry at the time, um, a lot of the breweries who were active looked to me for guidance as to what that statute meant, what the, what these new rules meant, and, and how they could incorporate that into what they were doing. Um, so, just what as is we, the difference legally from between a brew pub and a um, brewery? So, from a from a theoretical perspective, um, the difference between a brewery and a brew pub is that. A brewery is a manufacturer of beer. Right. Um, it's a manufacturing business first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the statutes really are directed at controlling a manufacturing business. Um, a brew pub, so the statutes say, um, a brew pub is really a restaurant that has a brewery in it. Um, so the brew pub, the, the brew pub piece of the legislation is really more directed at restaurant activities mm-hmm. um, and limiting the brewing activities to those that would be, quote, needed by a restaurant. Um, so there are some limitations that come along with being a restaurant with a brewery in it. Um, but there are also some limitations about being a manufacturing facility. Um, and so... Uh, so here in Wisconsin, the, the law makes a distinction between those two things, mm-hmm. um, and there are different rules that apply. Right. And so that's why my brewery clients are restricted. What is it? They can have two tap rooms. Is that the right one? Yeah. So if you're a brewery, or? right. So if you're a brewery, if you're a manufacturer of mm-hmm. beer, um, you're allowed to have up to two locations, uh, that you can serve beer from. Mm-hmm. Um, so those two locations don't have to be at your, uh, don't have to be at your brewing premises, but you can only have two locations where you serve beer. So, um, so if you were particularly creative, you could have a manufacturing facility where you didn't do it, where you didn't mm-hmm. have a tap room mm-hmm. and then have two tap rooms, say one in Milwaukee and one in Madison. Right. right. Um, most breweries, in fact, I'm not aware of any that have adopted that model. So mm-hmm. all of the breweries in Wisconsin are all breweries that are registered as breweries, mm-hmm. um, have on premises. So serve alcohol out of their tap rooms, have a mm-hmm. tap room. Um, and then that would give them one additional location. Mm-hmm. Um, you're starting to see some breweries taking advantage of that. Um, you know, most people are familiar with, um, with breweries that have a tap room. Um, but you're starting to see, I think Mobcraft is opening a Madison location mm-hmm. sometime in 2017, mm-hmm. um, or might be opening a tap room in 2017. Um, so, uh, you're starting to see breweries that are really taking full advantage of the law. Right, right. Because tap rooms are a great source of um, cash cash and revenue for small-scale Yeah, breweries, that's very right? true. And in fact, um, because of some of the limitations on breweries, what you actually see are a lot of manufacturing facilities that actually open as a brew pub. Um, so, mm. for example, Carbon 4... Uh, here in Madison, opened as a brew pub. And what that allowed them to do was have full-service alcohol um, mm. in their tap room. Mm-hmm. If, you're a brewery, if you're a brewery, 
you cannot serve um, anything other than beer. In right. fact, you can't serve any beer other than yours or beer from another brewery in the state of Wisconsin. That's the only thing you're allowed to serve. Whereas if you have a brew pub, you can serve beer, wine, liquor, any beer that you want, any wine, any liquor that, that you'd like. Um, the trade-off is that you do have to have food service because it has to because those things are attached to your restaurant license. Mm, mm-hmm. So you do, in fact, have to have a rest quote restaurant, uh, whatever that might mean. Right, um, right. And in the case of Carbon Four, it meant a relatively small kitchen, um, but it did let them have full service alcohol. Right. Now, I mean, there are some limitations to being a brew pub. Um, that can be pretty serious. So, you know, it's not a decision to be taken lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, but for many people uh, in that particular area, it works. Uh, can you sell beer wholesale if you are a brew pub? You can. So that gets into questions of self-distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, so breweries and brew pubs anymore don't hold their own wholesaling permits. Mm-hmm. Um, they used to. They don't anymore. Um In 2011, the law changed again, Um, but the law changed to remove um, wholesale permits from the brewers, but it gave the brewers, as part of their brewer's license, uh, gave them uh, wholesaling or distribution rights. Um, So as long as you're under, for a brewery, as long as you're under 300,000 barrels, uh, which is quite large. Which is a lot, Quite yeah. large. That would be the size of, say, New Glarus Brewing right, Company. Right, right. Um, is approximately 300,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, last I knew they were a little under that, but approximately. Um, if you are a brew pub, however, um, first of all, you have a total production cap of 10,000 barrels. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, so your your brewery cannot produce more than 10,000 barrels. You are allowed to self-distribute, um, but you're only allowed to self-distribute up to 1,000 barrels. Mm. So That's it does give – it is not a lot of beer at all. Um, mm-hmm. For an average startup, though, you, you know, that gets them maybe one to two years of runtime mm-hmm. um, before they have to find a distributor. Mm-hmm. And – you know, it's the modern trend is to uh, self-distribute for a very short period of time um, and then quickly find a distributor. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some, you know, business reasons why you might not want to run a distribution mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, company. Um, they're expensive like, to run. Yeah, and, it, and you never make any money at right, it. There you are don't make any money reason. at it. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, to distribute only your own brands is very expensive. You need yeah. somebody to drive the truck. You need somebody to go out and make sales calls. You need... Uh, you need a truck. You need a truck. You need a place <laughs> to store a car, truck. Right. You need refrigeration. Yeah. You, need, you need a lot of things. Um, and so distribution on any scale um, can be difficult. So... Um, what we see is a lot of breweries get started and self-distribute for maybe six months to about a year to year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really seeing anybody that self-distributes a whole lot longer than a year, year and a half. Even the people I talk to that say, we're going to self-distribute, um, don't really stick with it much longer than six months to a year just because of the business problems. I mean, it takes you away from brewing. And if you're only going to have two people, which Mm -hmm. a lot of small breweries can only afford to have two or three people, um, you don't want those people driving trucks around. You want them working in your tap rooms. Um, 
So, um, so self-distribution has – a lot of breweries get started with self-distribution, um, but a lot of breweries sort of leave it fairly quickly. Um, now, the downside to that is distribution rights have value. Um, and one of the nice things about the state of Wisconsin and alcohol production in general um, is that all of those rights are very tightly controlled uh, and they have value and distributors are required to compensate for that value. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can self-distribute for some period of time to demonstrate that your rights have value, you can sell those rights. Mm -hmm. um, if you can be relatively successful in a six-month period, that can get you a nice new canning line or a nice new bottling mm -hmm. line. Um, if you can hold off for a year or two, it might get you a whole new production facility. Right. Um, so, you know, holding off on, you know, doing self-distribution as long as you can possibly hold out um, so that you can recognize value in those distribution rights can really have a lot of benefit later on when you do choose a distributor. Um, and it shows that there's there are people in the market that want your beer. Right, um, right. So my my experience has been that that the distributors use kind of a mathematical formula yeah. um, for valuing the rights, um, usually like some multiple of your prior year of mm -hmm. sales. Yeah, um, that's true. Is, and I, I also in the I, territory in the in their territory in the specific territory. Right. So distribution rights. Beer, unlike other food and beverage, um, mm -hmm. are exclusive distribution rights yes, for a territory. Good point. Um, and so the distributor doesn't look at your overall distribution, doesn't look at your overall gross sales. They look at your gross sales in the territory. Right, right. Um, now, the territory might be the entire state of Wisconsin, mm -hmm. or it might just be the city of Milwaukee or mm -hmm. the city of Milwaukee or Dane County. Right. It might be far more limited, or it might be mm -hmm. the entire state of Wisconsin. Yeah, I I was at an event where the um, founder president, I think he's his title is president of Sprecher, talked about mm -hmm. how they built their brand uh, and now, Jeff Hamilton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah, Jeff's great. and their their bre their brand is now probably more associated with soda, with root beer, than it is with beer beer. But yeah. he said that they built, they basically financed the growth of their business for years uh, by strategically selling distribution rights. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And when I talk to, uh, when I talk to breweries, now, you know, from the distributor side of things, right, of, you know, they're going to try to get as much as they can for as little as possible. Oh, of course. Um, and so what we see what, what we see a lot of is uh, distributors approaching breweries in the first few months that they get their doors open and offering you know some Small either amount. nothing either nothing and saying hey don't worry about distribution at all we'll do that for mm -hmm. you just give us your distribution rights we'll be happy to take those on um, and they're not paying at all for them. Um, I think that was far more prevalent a few years ago. I think startup breweries are getting a little more sophisticated mm -hmm. um, as those of us who get out and talk to startup breweries have told them that their mm -hmm. distribution rights have value. Um, so what you're seeing then on the part of the distributor is offering some small amount of money, a token amount in, you know, by token, you know, it could be, you know, 10 to $50,000, mm -hmm. um, which 
for a startup brewery looking to buy raw materials for their next batch, that might seem like a big chunk of change. Um, you know, in the grand scheme of things, though, if you're if you can be smart and strategic mm-hmm. about it, um, as Jeff Hamilton said, you can you can finance your brewery for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So those contracts, when you sign a contract in the beer industry with a distributor, um, how easy is it to get out of them if you don't like them? So that's an interesting question. I'm laughing. <laughs> um, it's, it, that's a really interesting question um, because there is sort of contractual termination, but then there's sort of the reality of it. Um, and if you read any of those contracts and you talk to any distributor, uh, what they'll tell you is, and what the contract says is, this contract can be terminated at any time for any reason. Mm-hmm. And that is 100% correct. Any of those contracts can be terminated at any time for any reason. By either party? By either party. Really? By either party. There's a catch, though. Mm-hmm. And they don't tell you the catch. And the catch is um, that the laws in the state of Wisconsin, so these aren't just contractual rights. This is the law in the state of Wisconsin requires what we call a successor wholesaler to compensate a predecessor wholesaler for the, uh, for the fair market value of the distribution rights. Wow. So what does that mean? That means that you can, you can tell the distributor to stop anytime you want, but who's going to distribute it now for you? Right. Because wh- whatever party, including yourself, whatever party takes up distribution after that distributor is done mm-hmm. becomes the successor wholesaler. Um, so you, the brewery itself could become this successor wholesaler. The brewery itself could become the successor wholesaler, which would require the brewery to pay the predecessor wholesaler fair market value for the distribution rights in the territory. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It, it, it's, it, it's sort of one of those, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that's how that worked, uh, things that, um, that makes it really hard practically to switch distributors. So once you're in... You're, you're, you're kind of in, in for life. You're kind of in. And um, it's possible to switch distributors, um, but what you need to find is another distributor that you like that's going to do the work that you want and that's willing to pay fair market value for your distribution rights. Um, so that could be quite expensive if you're a brewery that's mm-hmm. been around for, you know, three, six, you know, ten years – you know, those distribution rights could cost, you know, $5 million. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that's a big chunk of change for any distributor. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you can look at the largest distributors here in the state and to pay $5 million to a predecessor distributor is not a decision they take lightly. Right. Um, and you do that too many times and you run out of distributors. <laughs> right. There aren't a lot of options <laughs> and nobody's going to pay. Yeah. So. Is is um, hard liquor and wine the same? So that's a good question, uh, which I don't know the answer to. Okay. Um, I do a lot of work in I, I do a lot of work in brewing. Um, I'm less familiar, although I'm becoming rapidly more familiar with I'm with sure wine you and are. liquor. Yeah. Um, I don't have those statutes memorized though. Right. Right. Um, I do know that wine does not permit self-distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- the wine industry has created a distribution co-op um, that is owned by the wineries. Huh. Um, th- it's pretty interesting model. 
actually. Um, and the effect of it is that uh, it lets the wineries have self-distribution um, without actually self-distributing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the co-op takes distribution rights over the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in Wisconsin, if you're going to sell wine, you have to have a wine seller's permit. So each individual who sells wine in the state has a wine seller's permit. Um, and so what you'll see is that a, that a winery might have, um, uh, might have a distribution deal with the, with the winery co-op, and then there's somebody on their staff that has a sales permit, and they go out and do all of the sales work um, and get the orders, and then the orders actually get placed through the co-op. Through the co-op. Interesting. Yeah. 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 It's a pretty novel solution to the it problem. It is, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because so what is I come from food and in the world of food distributors, you're like begging a distributor. You got to pay a distributor essentially. So this whole this whole even opportunity to get paid for your distribution rights is kind of a cool thing. On the other hand, the downside sounds like you can't get out of these relationships easily at all. They they create problems. Yeah. Um. In in in. You know, I wouldn't say it's better or worse. I'd just say it creates different strategic issues right. um, at and formation and in the early stages of a company. Right. Uh, it just it just creates, you know, different strategic problems. Right. Um, you know, one's not any better or worse than the other. Um, you know, there's a lot of nice things about having exclusive and, you know, perpetual distribution mm-hmm. rights too. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, and, you know, the, the great thing about alcohol is, you know, that they're statutorily enforced um, payment terms. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't have payment terms that extend more than, you know, 15 to 30 days. Mm. Uh, That's so, a handy thing. <laughs> otherwise, you can, uh, otherwise you can just stop supplying. The food people do all supplying. kinds of crazy things. Yeah, yeah, otherwise you can just stop supplying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's pretty great. Um, mm-hmm. So it creates... You know, it, it just creates different issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. know, they're not better or worse. They're just different. Mm-hmm. I think it is a great um, example, though, of why it's important at some point to talk to an attorney. Because if you don't understand, like, you know, you don't entirely understand what it, this distribution contract means. Like, it looks like I can get out of this anytime. So I'm signing away this thing. But, you know. Yeah. If you don't have the knowledge, then you don't know what you just signed. No, that, that that's absolutely right. Um, you know, you, not only to talk about, you know, the contract itself, but, you know, to think a little bit strategically about, you know, yeah. when and how to dispose of distribution mm-hmm. rights um, mm-hmm. can be, you know, is, is a really good conversation to have with your attorney. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think one of the one of the things that, you know, that Law and Entrepreneurship Clinic gives us a free place to get some legal counsel Um so that removes that particular excuse, right? We're not going to pay an attorney because we're too. We don't want to have to pay an attorney. But um, there's a downside to not having good, in my my experience, not having good legal advice in the beginning, right? Because then you make yeah. a bunch of problems, and then you have legal problems. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, that you know, uh, you know, an ounce of an ounce of prevention or uh, I don't know how it goes. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yeah. That's how that goes. Yeah. That's how that goes. Yes. Um, And so, you know, 
you know, in the early days, I know, you know, an ounce is really expensive. And I mean, maybe that's a bad metaphor, but, um, you, you know, relative to the amount of money that you have, it's it may, it legal might seem expensive. Um, but later, if you don't do it right, um, mm-hmm. it can cost a whole lot more than that to fix the problem. Right. Um, so spending a little bit of money or what you'll just have to take my word for is a little bit of money up front mm-hmm. um, it actually helps to prevent what can become extraordinarily expensive at right. the end. Right. So what other, since we're on the topic of regulatory here, what other kinds of regulatory issues come up with in food and beverage? Yeah, so, you know, you generally have uh, three layers of regulatory issues you have to worry about. There's federal regulatory issues, there's statewide regulatory issues, and then there might be local regulatory issues as well. Um, so, you know, at the at the national level, there might be um, – FDA or in the in the alcohol universe, uh, the TTB, the Tobacco and Trade mm-hmm. Bureau, um, both have regulations that impact, for example, alcohol production um, and alcohol labeling and food labeling in particular uh, or food labeling in general. Um, and then sometimes the USDA gets in on it if there's, you know, organic certification or uh, something like that. So, um, you know, FDA tells you what you can and can't put on labels. Uh, the TTB, the, the Tobacco and Trade Bureau, uh, tells you what should and shouldn't be on alcohol labels. Um, and then the USDA, you know, does some, uh, does organic certification. Um, so that's sort of high level from the, from the federal point of view. The state um, then has its own layer of um, usually revolving around inspections of some mm-hmm. sort in production facilities. Um, so they, they might have some production-specific rules around, um, around how your factory has to be laid out and what kinds of things that you're allowed or not allowed to do in your, in your production facility um, and how often and when and where and who has to inspect it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the local level, um, there might be zoning ordinances which say where you can and can't put your production facility. Um, there might be, you know, if you're going to have a restaurant on site, you know, there's going to be, you know, restaurant ordinances that um, that set out what your how your restaurant has to be set up and health inspections and all of that fun stuff. Um, and then, you know, if you're going to serve alcohol, there's, you know, alcohol licensing, which is typically at a at the local level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. 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 I I mean, I tell people that when the minute you go into food, because you actually can kill somebody if things go bad, Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of regulatory um, oversight on lots of levels that people have to navigate. And if somebody comes to you with their idea of a food company um, at the clinic, do you help people say, like, how do you help people around regulatory stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the The great thing that I have found about uh, regulatory agencies in general is, by and large, they're absurdly helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, more so, I would say, than um, than sort of licensing agencies or something like that. So, if you have to call, you know, Department of Financial Institutions, they're helpful. They're just not all that empowered to really do anything for mm-hmm. you. So, it can be 
frustrating. Um, but on the other hand, if you call DATCAP, they can actually answer a question for you. Um, Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection, who run, who, who's in charge of uh, food production regulations in the state of Wisconsin. Um, so while we can help, uh, while we certainly do a lot of regulatory research, that's a large part of um, things that we help to identify, mm-hmm. um, our regulatory issues, we encourage companies um, to call those regulatory agencies themselves, um, even more so than having us, an attorney, call them. Uh, because frankly, the regulatory agencies don't want to talk to lawyers, um, but they're more than happy to talk to, um, to talk to companies and talk to the people out there who are actually doing this stuff. You know, it doesn't do me as a lawyer any good, for example, to call the TTB about you know, how deep to dig a trench line for a drain in a brewery because they're going to tell me and it's not going to mean anything to me personally. Whereas if one of my brewery clients calls, if the head brewer calls over and says, hey, you know, we have this, you know, we're, we're putting in the, you know, we're putting in the fermentation vessels today. What is our, you know, what do our drains have to look like? You know, they can, they can talk directly to the construction mm-hmm. supervisor or they can give you, they, they can give instructions to the person who's actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're very helpful and friendly about doing that. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things I, I'm hearing from a couple of brewery clients is that the state is um, decided that they're going to start regulating breweries under the same um, fa- the facilities-related stuff to food. Yeah. Um, so have you been hearing about this or is, is this, yeah, just this is a something different, that, in, is this just a different implementation of the same rules or have the rules changed? Uh, I think this is sort of more of the same, which is to say that, um, the regulatory agencies in the state of Wisconsin have limited funding. Mm-hmm. And so every so often they pick a place to use the, to, to direct oh, no. that funding, right? right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's the dairy producers, sometimes it's the meat producers, and sometimes it's the breweries. Mm-hmm. And the last few years, it's been the breweries. Um, and so, you know, the, the regulatory agencies look at the laws. I mean, the laws are what they are, and the, the rules are what they are, and they take the stance that um, breweries uh, are manufacturers of a food product. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as manufacturers of food products in the state of Wisconsin, they're subject to oversight by by the Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection. Um, it's, I, I think for breweries, it's not as big of an issue, um, which isn't to say that it, it's not a hassle or it's not a problem um, or that, you know, and I think those terms are even more derogatory than I mean them um, because I don't really see inspection as a bad thing, um, but, it's, but it is another thing that you have to deal with and it could create some complications, although there's rarely, con- though rarely contradictory problems, um, but it can create complications that you know, the TTB doesn't require you to have hand sinks everywhere, but, you know, DATCAP's going to come in and say you need hand sinks everywhere. Um, so, you know, it can create complications. Um, where I think it was unexpected was in the brew pub context. Um, 
And it has created some interesting jurisdictional problems um, where, you know, where DATCAP inspectors are coming in to, to inspect the manufacturing facilities and noticing something about the restaurant. Right, um, right. And so as a brewery owner, they have to remind the, the inspector what they're there to do mm-hmm. um, and say, hey, that's not your jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Um, let the restaurant folks deal with that. Mm-hmm. And vice versa for the restaurant folks, too. Health inspector will right. come in and now wants to have a tour of the brewing operations. Mm-hmm. And you're like, eh, that's not what you're here for, buddy. Right. Um, you, you know, you're here to look at the restaurant. Right. Well, and uh, what I'm hearing is... Um, that breweries, so it always surprised me that I'd go in a brewery as a because of my background is mm-hmm. cheese and dairy processing, right? And there would be things like um, cardboard boxes stacked up in the same room as the brewing, right? And you could not do that in a food in a food regulated environment, right? And that was kind of in a lot of breweries I saw that and. I, I'm here. What I'm hearing is that they're going to start enforcing not having things like cardboard storage for um, for packaging stuff in in allowed in the same room as your make room. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and so this is. I mean, I think this gets at a larger policy issue. Um, you know, a, as a lawyer, my 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 general philosophy is the rules are what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, from a policy perspective, I don't know that things like that make a whole lot of sense. Um, and so, you know, it makes more sense to look at that as a um, as a policy change um, than necessarily one of implementation. Um, and so, you know, what I would say is, you know, we need to look at, you know, we need to look at the regulations and say, you know what, these regulations were designed for, you know, for a dairy plant. They weren't designed for alcohol manufacturing where the sheer nature of the production process makes a lot of the concerns that you have in a dairy universe. A lot of the problems that you have there simply don't exist because because of the nature of alcohol production. Right, it's alcohol killing everything. Alcohol kills <laughs> alcohol everything, kills everything right? right? And the right. heat used to create right. the alcohol kills everything. Right. And once you're in process, it's an entirely contained process. Mm-hmm. The, the alcohol, in theory, you know, depending on what kind of alcohol you're producing, there are some, there are some beer varieties that have open fermentation. Um, but by and large, most alcohol production... Once the raw materials go into the stainless steel, they don't come out of the stainless steel until they're in a capped bottle um, or in a can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, if there's a piece of cardboard next to the bottling line, who cares, mm-hmm. right? Because there, there's no risk of exposure to the to the product. Um, so, you know, there's absolutely policy reasons for changing the law um, or changing the rules. Um and I might argue that that should that should maybe argue for a more lenient interpretation of the rules, um, or at least understanding the context of rule uh, of rule application. Um, 
But from a DATCAP perspective, you know, from a regulator perspective, they're looking at it and saying, these are the rules. And you got to, you know, you're a food manufacturing facility. Right. Um, So, you know, that gets into a larger and far more complicated problem of changing the rules. Right. Well, (laughs) and and I guess, you know, so your business, you built your brewery and you didn't you didn't contemplate having to have a different room. And now all of a sudden you need a room that's specifically for your boxes. And it's not a trivial thing to have to create another room. You know what I mean? So that is true. Yeah. Yeah. So so from the perspective of a business and um so anyway, I just I I I think that the whole regulatory environment and how it tends to operate, there's a lot of help that that legal just just advice like, hey, you ought to worry about this room thing or something. You know what I mean? Somewhere yeah. along the way that people people need um, some help with. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. The the regulatory side of this is. The, the regulatory policy piece of this is pretty uh, – of food and beverage in particular, of alcohol and beer and uh, uh, even more particularly, yeah, um, tends to be, be. nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in other words, everybody wants more breweries. Right, <laughs> um, right. Except for the specific people that don't. And those specific people don't tend to have party affiliations. Mm-hmm. They tend to have cultural affiliations. And mm-hmm. those cultural affiliations are – People like Mothers Against Drunk Driving right. or the Tavern League or mm-hmm. – um, so they tend to be more um, – they tend to be more business or, or cultural objections mm-hmm. than partisan ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's interesting to be able to find uh, parties – to be able to find people on both sides of the aisle willing to implement, you know, regulatory change to make – you know, food and beverage or alcohol production easier, um, but then you run into sort of these cultural barriers, mm-hmm. um, which, um, which is just sort of a different kind of problem than we're normally used yeah, to yeah. Uh, and in policy. Especially in alcohol is like yeah. that, right? Yeah. And and that is probably explains why state by state there's such different regulatory environments, right, for around alcohol. Yeah, I mean that goes, you know, goes, it goes back, back to it goes right? back to prohibition, mm-hmm. goes back to pre-prohibition. It, it, you know, it it goes back to a lot of things, um, but you know, the short of it is that the that whenever you're talking about alcohol in particular, um, and food in general, but alcohol in particular. Um, the federal regulation is less about is less about making product that won't kill you mm-hmm. and more about making sure that the federal government can collect their tax. Um, so the rules that you see from the federal government tend to be more aligned around how do we make sure that you're paying tax on every drop of beer that you produce. Interesting, yeah. Um, they don't tend to be sort of the nitty-gritty don't kill people. Um, mm-hmm. There is some of that. Um there is certainly is some of that, um, but you know the the real hard rules you know around don't kill people mm-hmm. tend to be at the state level, right? Um, and and so you know you have this federal tax um, excise tax, um, 
and then at the state level, you, you have the actual implementation of the production of, mm-hmm. of alcohol or, or whatever it might be. So there is a lot of state-to-state variation in the rules around production and in particular distribution of alcohol. Yeah. Um, and sales, right? I mean, yeah. I, I, I went to um, – I was an undergrad in, at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, oh, the yeah. land of um, yeah. state liquor state stores. State liquor stores, yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy. Yeah. Uh, probably at the time that you were there now, it, it has loosened. I don't know how recently you've been back ago, to Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, but they have loosened it a little bit where – um, it used to be you could only buy beer in a minimum package size of a case at a time, and you had to buy it Jeez. directly from the distributor. Oh, my. Um, so if you wanted beer, you had to buy a lot of it. Right. Um, and you could only buy it by the case from wow. the distributor. Um, which was a little good thing. Weird. I was a wine drinker back yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah. That was a little weird. And then you, and then you could go to the state liquor store to get wine right. or, uh, liquor. Mm-hmm. Um, Ohio similarly had, uh, state liquor stores, mm. uh, state run liquor stores. And, um, you know, for, you know, it seems weird in a democratic capitalist society that we have state-run agencies that are, you know, selling goods directly to, directly to consumers. Um, that just seems, it just, you know, in retrospect seems really weird. Really strange. Um, but, you know, at the time that these rules were passed, you know, coming out of prohibition, you know, they were concerned that everybody was going to fall back into becoming, you know, we're just going to be a nation of alcoholics. Mm-hmm. And so the state needed to, you know, the state um, needed to regulate the amount of alcohol or needed to be at least the person in charge of doling out how much alcohol people had. Um, And so some states took stricter uh, lines than others. Now, the state of Wisconsin has never had a state liquor store uh, uh, um, method. Um, Other states have, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it was maybe, you know, a third to a half of states had state liquor store agencies. Isn't that crazy. It, a varying, a varying type. So, uh, you know, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, New York, all had state liquor agencies, which is kind of weird. Kind of weird. Yeah. Cool. Is there anything else you can think of? I'm sure there's more. Well, we've been we'll talking be long enough. I don't. I'm not sure. I'm sure there is more. If somebody sure came and more. asked a question, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure it would send me down some other path. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, uh, well, there'll be that's opportunities. A pretty high level. Yeah, well, there'll be other opportunities for deep diving into, into um, various areas related to food. But this has been terrific. Thanks for coming. And Absolutely. Yeah, and I look forward to more work. Yeah, me yeah. too. Cool. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Edible Alpha podcast. If you like what you heard, rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Visit edible-alpha.org for more resources about the best practices in making money in food. 